0: I guess there, there was a lot of points to that, that game we played here. Number one, you can be competitive without being very good at something. Um, secondly, uh, uh, thinking about that, as you think about inviting people to a life group, uh, you might think, well, I'm just not that, you know, uh, social, or I'm, I'm kind of an extrovert rather than an introvert. But it's, it doesn't matter how many people you actually get into a group, but try, right? I, I uh, actually got two, lost one, and ended up with one, but Tony so much more skilled than I and had five or six people but each one can reach one so invite somebody to be in a life group Uh, that's what it's all about and and we'll go from there All right, well, uh, today we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians. So uh, as we prepare our hearts and minds to see what Paul said to the churches, the Christians back then, we'll see what he says to us now. So grab a Bible, turn to Galatians. It's in the New Testament. Get through the the Gospels, get through a couple larger books, and then you find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, stop at Colossians and turn to chapter 3. We'll be looking at just a few verses, but it's going to be helpful if you're seeing the verses when we look at uh, the text this morning. Uh, But before we do, let's look to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we pray in the midst of all that we do that you might really speak into our lives. Father, it's a a place where we can come, uh, uh, this church, to to worship uh, through song, uh, through prayer, through giving, through our relationships with one another. But beyond uh, all that we do, Father, we want to uh, give praise and honor to the one who is worthy. And Father, uh, if you are worthy and you are, then you are worthy to be followed and trusted in. And Father, we pray that uh, that might happen today as we spend time in your word, and we praise in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In your outlines this morning, I asked a question, and this is really what we're going to try to wrestle with. uh, What's happening to you spiritually? Uh, How is it going for you spiritually? And as you think about that question, there's a variety of responses that I've heard over the last years of just talking to people uh, about their relationship with God or lack thereof their relationship with God. And I get various responses. Yeah, one response for a person who's trying to respond in a positive way and say, Yes, I, I'm doing really well spiritually. I'm very religious. Now, again, I'm not trying to judge everybody's comment, but when people say things like that, initially what I think about is that they are evaluating their spiritual life Uh, based on how well they are doing in whatever activity, religious activity, that they think is uh, important or vital. Maybe they, they think they're doing well spiritually because they come to church six or seven days a week. Maybe they think they are very uh, spiritual because uh, they, they pray certain prayers, uh, may repeated prayers throughout the week, or, or whatever it might be. They think they're doing pretty well because uh, as they think about the commandments of God, uh, they're, they're obeying all of them or most of them to their best of their ability. But as you think about it, and we're going to see this in a moment, just because someone does something very religiously, uh, they could be sick on the inside spiritually. Now, some people, when you ask that question, say, well, you know, I'm not very religious, but I am very spiritual. Now, often when I pursue that conversation a little bit further with people, they say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, um, you know, as I think about uh, the important things and in this universe, and I think about a higher power, as I think about things that I, I cannot explain, or an energy within me, or the force be with you, you know, I feel real close to that, that force that's that's somehow governing this universe, and, and so they judge, and I'll, and I'll broaden that definition a little bit, they judge how they're doing spiritually to how they're feeling about mystical things, things you can't fully explain, it's out there, but you're connecting in some ways, maybe you're Looking at some cards, or maybe there's some crystals, or a certain lighting, or incense that you're burning, and, and and you feel you know you're kind of close to whatever whatever is out there. But what I want to do with you, uh, for all of us this morning, as we look at what Paul did to the Christians uh, in the churches in Galatia, he really spoke to the issue, and he says, I want you to understand it's it's not so it's not so much about what you're doing on the outside. You can be doing all kinds of activity, but you could be you could be really missing it spiritually. And it doesn't really mean uh, so much about how you're feeling on the inside, because I don't know about you, if, uh, you know, if I'm sick, if I have the flu, I don't particularly feel real spiritual. Anybody feel really spiritual when you're, you're sick? Uh, and I won't go into the graphics of what that looks like when you're sick, but you, you, you don't, th- that feeling is not particularly there, and you might be thinking, well, you know, where's God? Because uh, I'm not feeling too well today. But we was really speaking about to them and to us as well, it's it's really inherent upon what has been, been done to you and in you by, by the living God is what makes a difference spiritually. Because a lot of things can look pretty good on the outside. Um, does this look like a pretty good apple? Yeah, and it's kind of shiny, and you know, if you were to feel it, it's pretty firm, and, and you say, okay, I want to see how good an apple is. So how do I know if it's a good apple? I got to take make bite, I got to take taste. How, how did it sound? Nice. Sound pretty good, didn't it? Actually, it does taste pretty good, too. Um, now, what if I told you, however? Ooh. When I looked at this apple, there's a worm inside. Now, you say, you say that's not too good, right? It looked good on the outside, it even tasted pretty good, but then there's a worm sa- inside. Something's wrong. You know what's worse than having a worm in your apple? Half a worm, right? Yeah, you don't want to have half a worm. Last <laughs> morning, we want, we, want, we want you to look good on the inside as well as the outside. We, we want you to know that, that God has a plan for your life. And what he wants to do is he wants to take everything that's going on the inside and draw you close to him. And that's really what the Apostle Paul was emphasizing. He was, he was speaking to a group of people who primarily was erring on the other side. A side of, 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 if I'm just religious enough, then I know I'm, I'm close to God. Well, you can be r- religious, which is kind of a, a word that really speaks about doing something habitually that's good. And that, that is something that can draw you into a more disciplined uh, relationship with God. But if, if it's all external, then nothing's really happening on the inside in your relationship with God. So this morning, let's, let's look at this. And, and basically, we're going to answer two questions. How are you doing spiritually? You have to ask the question, first of all, what does the law do for you? Or what does religion do for you? And then we're going to look at what does Jesus do for you? All right? Just two simple questions that we're going to try to answer as we think about how can you be well spiritually by looking at what is really happening on the inside. Okay, what does the law do for you? Beginning with Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 23, Paul writes this, But before faith came... And let me just throw this in for free. Faith in the Bible is used both as a verb and a noun. Now, this is not an English class. But sometimes when you think about it as a verb, it really speaks about the idea of are you trusting in whomever you are saying that you're trusting in? And people have all kinds of names for God, people have all kinds of religious pursuits. And you can judge their loyalty to whomever they're following after by how much they're trusting or how much faith using it as a verb, an active thing that you're doing in relationship to what they, they say they have um, loyalty to. But it's also used as a noun, and what that means is what is your faith? Are you of the Catholic faith? Are you of the Jewish faith? Are you of the Muslim faith? Are you of the Christian faith? Are you the Baptist faith? Sometimes people will categorize it in so many different ways, and they'll describe well, what is your faith by using some kind of label that will help people understand, well, what, what is the content of what I believe in? Now, sometimes those labels are helpful, but what we're going to be and hopefully today as well as any day, what we're really saying, our faith is really all about, it's one word, it's one person, it's Jesus. And so really, as you think about it, what we're going to be talking about today is, is really how is your faith as a noun in Jesus, and how much are you really trusting, truly trusting in Jesus? And, and so as you think about that, there are things that can get in the way of that. There's things that can keep you far from really seeing Jesus clearly and trusting him completely and fully. And it all begins here when he says this, but before faith came, and he's speaking here of the true faith, the faith in Jesus, when Jesus came on the scene, we were kept in custody under the law. So what does the law do for you? It puts you in custody, or put another way, it puts you in puts you in bondage. If it's a location, it puts you in prison, right? It puts you in jail. Now, does, does anybody, uh, unless you're visiting someone you care about and trying to encourage them or lift them up, does anybody want to uh, change their residence and, and put it in jail? Now, it, it's a place of, of bondage. It's a place of, of being shackled in terms of your life. And, and what he was saying to very religious people, I want you to know that that what you put, take pride in, you've missed the whole purpose of why it was why it was given. It's not that the law was was wrong or that it was bad or that uh, it had no purpose, but they had missed the purpose. And what the law did was put you in prison. And when you get in prison, the first thing you want to do is to get what? Out of prison. Oh, you are such a sharp group out there, right? And and so what the law does, it says you are in prison and you need desperately to get out. And, 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 And sometimes people are deceived and they don't think they're in prison, but they really are. And that's why the law came. And the reason people get in prison is because they've done something wrong, right? And when you're in prison, you're receiving the penalty of your behavior actions. But even further, as we think of what the law does for us, it points out our sin, but also brings us to the point where we realize that we are under sin's control. No matter how many self-help books you, you read, no matter how many counseling sessions you, you go to, no matter how many counselors or people who give you sound advice you have, the problem is on the inside, and God has to change the inside, and that's why Jesus came. We've already sung about that. And so as we think about how you're doing spiritually, first of all, you have to recognize how, how you have such a great need that apart from Jesus, you're in prison. Now, I have a cross-reference here. It says Romans 2.12, which actually I, I didn't write. If you've ever seen me write or print or whatever, I, people miss what I write and print all the time. There's supposed to be a comma between 1 and 2, so it wouldn't be 12, it would be 1 and 2. Uh, but what they, were, they were having pride in their own religious behavior, and partly because they felt they were better than anybody else just because they, they knew the law. And so Paul writes to them, Therefore, you have no excuse... Now, that's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? As you think about your relationship with God, and, and, and you're on that, that fence deciding whether you really need him, he's saying, you have, you have no excuse. I don't know where you're, why, where or why you're coming from, where you're coming from, but you have no excuse before God. Particularly if you think you're better than somebody else. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Is it all right to be honest in church? Okay, how many of you have ever judged somebody else's behavior? Okay, and maybe even took it a step further, not only judge their behavior, but really judge them, which is saying, because that person does that, they are a worthless person. You know, and you, and you, I, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and basically, that's what they were doing. So they said, look, like, we have the law. We know what's right and wrong. In God's eyes, he gave it to us. We didn't, we didn't make it up ourselves. And, and so we're, we've got to be better just because we have that information He says, all all you are is more responsible because you know more clearly what's right and wrong and the things that you pass judgment on others, they shouldn't be doing that, they shouldn't be doing this. He said, you do exactly the same things. For you who judge practice the same things and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. I'll put it this way. Do you ever feel guilty? And you know why you feel guilty? Because you are guilty. Now, I, that's not, not exactly encouraging words, but the reality is we, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And, and there are times we are convicted of that which is wrong in our life, and that comes from God. And to clarify it, so it becomes very objective, he's written it down so we might know the moral heart of God. So as we think about our, our, how, how are we doing spiritually, well, we, we've got to realize before you get well, particularly if something's wrong with you, you've got to recognize that you are sick. And if you're going to be set free from whatever you're experiencing, you have to know that you're in prison. That that this is not just an experience that you're going through. You're in bondage to the habits of your life and the pursuits of your life. This is an internal thing as we think about relationship with God. Paul wrote to the Later on in that same chapter, he said, I want you to understand, who, who is a real true follower of God? And he was speaking to Jewish people, so he said, who is a, really a true Jew? Is it someone who is a Jew outwardly? He said, oh, no way. Just because you have a mark, and for men, even if you've been circumcised, that doesn't mean you truly know God. But a true Jew, a true follower of God, is one who has inwardly been circumcised of the heart. So what does the law do for us? What the law does for us is, is to show us that we're in prison. We are under the penalty and power of our own sin, and we are guilty before God. I was reading actually, Alice was, my wife was t- telling me this is, and this, this is, she saw it on I don't know where she saw it, but she says, I, "I've finally realized it. People are prisoners of their phones. Are, are, do you realize that? You know why they're prisoners of their souls? Because that's why they call them cell phones. So if you like it, I said it. If you don't like it, you can talk to Alice. All right. So we're in prison. We're in prison because of, of we fall short of God. But secondly, the law reveals you are spiritually ignorant. Isn't it great to come to church? You find out that you're in prison and you're also you're ignorant. All right. Well, in Galatians, the latter part of that verse, he says it pretty plainly there as well. He says in Galatians 3, But before faith came, we were kept in custody of the law. And then said, being shut up, to the faith which was later to be revealed. Shut up. Yeah, you know, that's a song, that's a strong word in the original language it, it from Suncleo, and it really means this. It means, it, it, it means you are brought to that point where you are locked up in a secure way. You are enclosed on all sides. And really, I think the idea here of being shut up to the true faith is the idea this, is that you, you are talking about things you have no understanding about. You know, I, I was kind of humbled by how well Tony beat me at that monkey game or whatever it was. But, you know, if I really want to be humble, I just talk to Tony about computers, all right? You know, I know so little about computers, and he knows so much. And how foolish it would be for me to come across that I could explain to you what's happening in that box in front of you or that little iPad before you or whatever it might be and explain why it's working or not working. I don't know anything about it. And really what he's saying here, you who are filled with knowledge about what has happened in the past are clueless about the whole purpose of everything that happened in the Old Testament and what it was leading to. It's all been fulfilled in Jesus, and and, and you need to be shut up about spiritual things because you have nothing to say. You know, right before verse 23 comes verse 22, and it says this, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So often we, we can present something to other people about you know, we're right, and the other people are wrong, or, or people are falling short, but we're not falling short, short, and he said, look, you're missing it. It's all about knowing it's all about Jesus. But he's dealing with an audience that still is not convinced, so he goes on and, and tries to hammer again. What, what does the law do for you? Well, it, it really puts you in prison because you realize you're under the guilt and power of, of sin, and you can't, re- you can't get out on your own. Now, you realize this, how ignorant you are. You think you know what's going on, and you really don't know what's going on. It's really all about Jesus, and they want to have Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. So then he goes on and says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. So let me put it in plain ter- terms. You need to be led from where you are to where you need to be. And in case you can't understand on an adult level, let me put it on a children's level because it, sometimes if we can understand what children are being taught, we can understand as adults what, what really is right in this world. Is there, you, you remember how people were, were raised in that day or how you've raised a lot of your children? And he's speaking largely to a Gentile audience here. And he's saying what you had to do is or what you did do is you, you got a, a schoolmaster or a tutor or a guardian and what you did is you, you handed your kids off to them. And we need to realize no matter what we, how we teach children, whether we send them to school or private school or homeschool, or whatever it might be, we realize there's all kinds of influences out in the world. And no matter where they're getting information, trust me, they're getting information from all kinds of places, we want to shepherd our children, don't we? And what they did is they gave some people, and usually they were a slave, they gave them the responsibility to raise their children, to teach their children. The original word is pedagogy, and peda comes from what we get, pedals, and so some say it's like feet, and goji comes the idea of leading. They were leading the little feet to learn what it means to go from being a child into an adult. But, he, but he, this image has so many things going with it because you need to understand, because they put their faith in the law. They put their faith in the old covenant. They put their faith in, in all the details of what they had been told before and said, You don't understand. You go to school to learn, and then you, hopefully, when you go to school, eventually you what? You learn, and if you pass, and the, you graduate, right? The, the goal of life is not to stay in school your entire life. The goal is to graduate and then actually do something. Isn't that true? And so look some of you you're still, you're still thinking you're in school. The whole purpose of the of the tutor is to bring you to the point of maturity, to bring you the point of now live your life. And the life is found in a person, it's Christ. But now that faith has come, we no longer under a tutor. Now, some of you had great relationships with, with teachers, professors, and you might go back and visit your schools, or uh, whether it be elementary school or high school or college, and, and, and you just had a great relationship with that tutor, but but they're no longer your teacher. You have to move on from that. And so he was really speaking, and you need to understand that this gets you to the place where you realize that not only does the, the law teach you that you're in prison and that you're ignorant, but it also teaches the place that, that you are desperate because one of the greatest fears of, of some people is what, what happens what happens when school is finally over. Now, now I've got to do something with my life. And, it, and it's a scary situation when you're, when you know, okay, now, now I don't always have someone tell me what to do every moment of the day. Now, now I've got to live my life. Now let me just speak to what that means spiritually. Is it, one way to take a monitor or thermometer, I guess, on your, on your spiritual life is if your spiritual life is filled with anxiety, maybe you're trusting in something else other than Jesus. Now, we all get anxious. I'm not saying if you ever have an anxious thought, something's wrong with you. But but what are you saying here? It's to lead you to something so much better. If somehow in your relation with God, you, you see God way out there, but... but you would never describe your relationship with God as being personal. It's, it's somehow connecting with that higher power. And that's one of the dangers of 12-step programs, that they speak of God in generic terms, but it, God is immensely personal. Do You have a personal relationship with God. And so as we think about that, this brings us to a point where we recognize we've got to do something and God's got to do something because I'm in prison because of my sin. I'm under its bondage. I'm really ignorant about spiritual things. I have nothing to say unless God says it. And I'm desperate for God to do something in my life. So what does Jesus do for you? Let's look at a few verses that really speak clearly about what Jesus does. And what I want to talk about here is very plainly. What does Jesus do for you? Unlike with the law, the external part of what God's planned for our life, that which transforms us on the inside is this. He transforms us into a son of God. He transforms us into an exalted position. And he transforms us into a new person. Didn't do in the right order, but you'll get it as we go. Let's look at what he says here. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So what do you saying before? Before you were, you, were, you were someone who was led by someone else. And what's interesting too about you know the, the tutor, the schoolmaster, the pedagogy, the whatever you want to call that person who was assigned to raise that child in the home of a gentile home, a non-Jewish home. What was uniquely different about that is that that tutor was not the parent. And see, a, a parent brings you into this world. You know, what does a teacher do? It 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 helps you learn in this world, but it didn't bring you into this world. And so what they were thinking is that the law had somehow birthed them into a relationship with God, and so no, all it does is point you to the one who can birth you into a relationship with God. And so he said, I want you to understand that you're in a family now, but this family is even beyond your nuclear family. You're now in God's family, and you are a son of God. There is no more amazing identity than knowing you are a son of God. But you know what's interesting about this is I was just reflecting upon it this week. As we think about that, and the Bible's pretty clear, not pretty clear, really clear, the Bible says, but as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. And then it goes on and emphasizes it even more, this is a God thing, not born of the blood or born of the flesh or, or, the, or the will of man, but of the will of God. But when you look at this, and, and ladies, uh, um, maybe, maybe there are times you read the Bible. I had this question asked to me in a Bible study this past week. Is, is, the, is the Bible a little chauvinistic? You know, does, does the Bible somehow put the women at a lower level than the men? And, and some, when they look at the Bible, they like to, particularly in the English language, they would like to retranslate a little bit and make it uh, gender neutral. Have you ever been around people who've talked that way? Um, And sometimes if you do that, however, what I would say is then you're going to miss the nuggets that are in the Scripture that are so powerful. Some would say, well, why don't we just just translate it this way? It wouldn't be an accurate translation, but why don't we say, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it does say that in other places, but here it says, you are sons of God. And really what it's speaking to here, and he's going to emphasize this a little bit later in some passages right behind this, he says, look at women, the, the reason I am saying and announcing this to you is God has put you on this position plainly. Not only did you begin it this way, you were made in the image of God, but as being found in Christ, we're all sons of God. Because in that culture, what would happen is that if you were a daughter, you do not have a legal right to the inheritance of your family, because only the son had legal right to inherit the riches of the family. And what he was saying here, I want you to understand you all are joint heirs with Christ, and you all receive everything that he can give. You are blessed immensely by God. And he uses, I think, Pointedly to say you are the us, the sons of God, because he you are of joint heirs with every gender, the, the two genders of being part of God's family. But then he goes on and he, and he, and he says this about them. He says, not only are you, are you transferred into a son of God, uh, you are transferred into a new person. And here he uses a different image. He says, for all of you were baptized into Christ Jesus And baptism is a statement, a public statement, with a with a a symbol everybody can understand as you're brought underneath the water and brought back out of the water, and it's identifying you with Christ, that you are now immersed in him. But then he uses another image, and he says this for all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, if you know anything about the the Roman Empire. Uh, they had conquered basically the known world. And and, in Rome, they had 120 million people there, but half of them were slaves. And you didn't have to guess a whole lot about uh, where your status was in in life, what your class was. You could look just immediately at what you were wearing, and it it spoke volumes about who you are and what place you had in in the hierarchy of life. But he says, well, what I want you to know (laughs) That when you become a person in Christ, not only you've given that status, you can say, who am I? I'm a son of God. But you can also say that I'm clothed in Christ, that that I'm wearing that which identifies with me as being a a person who truly knows the living God, and I'm identifying with him. Now, I think uh, the Emmys are coming up really soon. And if you ever go on uh, the, the news stations, they, they will talk about past Emmys or Oscar Academy type things. And they'll always, always do a site there as far as who looked good at past, you know, uh, award ceremonies, who looked good on the red carpet, and who what? Who bombed on the red carpet. And, and they are judging people based on how well their outfit looked. And usually the focus is on the... On the on the ladies, but they, they, they do a great, they have a huge emphasis on evaluating people about what they wore. And, and we recognize that sometimes people are going to judge us by what we're wearing on that particular day. Did we dress too much or too little or whatever might be in between? But I want you to understand that not only do we that, but we often will identify ourselves in various ways. If you're really a sports fan and, and your team is winning, you're going to put on a, a Dodger jersey, right? If your team is losing, you put on a Angel jersey, and I just, I just alienated half of you today. All right, so. But you know, if your team is winning, then you're proud to wear on that which identifies you with that winning team. And what do you see? I want you to understand that you are to clothe yourself with Christ. And the idea here is not physical clothing, but it's the idea of put on in your life that which will identify you as a, a person who follows after Jesus. In Ephesians 4, he puts it this way, you know, put on... Uh, Put off the old self and put on the new self. And really, what you clothe yourself is, is how you live and how you act. What things are important to you, what things are not important to you. In Colossians, in your life group this week, you'll be looking at that passage and say, there's some things I want you to put off. I want you to put off the anger that is controlling your life. I want you to put off that which you're holding on to tightly. I want you to put on that which is symbolic and illustrative of who I am. I want you to be kind and gentle t- toward others. I want you to be self-sacrificing. I don't want you to be selfish. And, and so what he's saying here, look, at, you have the privilege because you're in Christ. Is you, you can now put on that which identifies you as a person who walks with God by, by how you live. And, and there's a challenge here. And, and I don't look at the passage here when we we're going through it earlier, but... You know, remember the story of the rich young ruler. It's recorded for us, I think, in Matthew 19. And he—he's a person who came up to God, to, to Jesus. I—I uh, I know you're good, and I was wondering, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus was really pricking at his heart, and he said, Well, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and the only one that's good is God. So if you're saying I'm good, you're really saying I'm—I'm I'm God. And then he said, Well, I've—I've I've done everything I can to to really know know God. And he said, well, then just obey all, all the commandments. He said, I've done that since I was a little guy trying to do the very best to be obedient. And see, he hadn't come to that place where he realized that he was desperate and they, that he was in prison and that he was ignorant of what it really means to know God. So, so Jesus pointed right at that which he was willing, unwilling to accept about his life. He said, well, then take everything you have and give it to the poor. And what he was saying to look at, there, there is a commandment that you're just missing here, or willing, unwillingly, thou, thou shalt not covet. He said, your, your riches are more important to you than anything else in this world. And one of the things that we can do to evaluate how we're doing spiritually if we've crossed the line of faith is what is it in your life that's more important than Jesus? What, what is it that's more important in your life than falling after Him fully and faithfully? What is more important in your life that? You're not willing to give up or to pursue because at that moment, it's more important. And and what are you saying? I want you to understand, if you realize who you are, you you are a son of God. You've been identified with Christ and you have the privilege of of living a life that people can see Jesus in you. Don't go back to that which is so, so unsatisfying by falling out that which has no eternal value. And then finally, not only does he transform us into the Son of God, not only does he transform us into a brand new person, but he transforms us into an exalted position. Galatians 3, and 29, Paul writes this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are one, all one in Christ Jesus. I, I may mention when he calls us all sons of God that what he does is he puts us all in the same position spiritually before God. Here, here he gets very specific. He says, I want you to understand that many of you, you are, you are evaluating other people as well as yourself based on a variety of things that really don't matter. And I want you to understand you're all one in Christ, so it doesn't matter, number one, uh, what you are ethnically, for there's neither Jew nor Greek. And some of the people that come into the church of Galatia, they were saying, somehow we're more spiritual because we have a Jewish heritage. And he says, that means nothing before God in in your standing with him. So ethnically, there's only really one race spiritually that God has brought in. It's this human race. And so we all have ample opportunity to follow after Jesus. And whenever we fall into the sin of racism, that is so far from God's heart. There's neither Jew nor Greek. And then he goes on, there's neither slave nor free man. Now at that time, they didn't have the option to decide what vocation they wanted. If they were captured, if they were conquered by Rome, they were going to become a slave. And he says, in the midst of all that you have in relations with other people, I want you to understand, it doesn't matter whether someone's a medical doctor or someone's a soldier or whether someone's a tax collector or someone is enslaved by somebody else. And you all come to the church, and what happened in that church, it was a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, but a multi-status of life. And he said, look, when you come here, in the church, you might be ruled by a slave man, and you might be free, but they are closer to me, and they're going to give leadership in the church. There's only one standing before God, and the ground is equal at the cross. And then he did say gender-wise, he said, there's neither male nor female. maybe you've heard this before, but there was a prayer prayed very self-righteously by religious leaders, Pharisees, and this is what they would pray often. I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, and a free man and not a slave. And so he was really speaking in the heart of people that were to see that they were close to God and they were so far from him. We are all one in Christ. We, we, are, we are living in a day and age now where, where things are happening so often and so rapidly and significantly and powerfully, it's, it's hard to keep on what's going on in the culture. And that, that's a whole series of messages. But as we think about it, there's neither male nor female you know, People have taken that, not that they're getting their instructions from the Bible, and say, well, you know, I, I don't think there really are only two genders. In fact, on birth certificates and employment forms, now they don't, they, they'll say male, female, choose not to designate or other. If you want to look at what's going on today, it, 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 not only for some say, well, how many genders are there? Well, some would say, you know, Biologically there's only two, but really there's six It's LGBTQ plus. but there's more than six now, if you go on any of the searches now, there are between sixty, 60 and a hundred designated genders now in our culture today. Now, what is one of the reasons why this happened? Because for whatever reason where they 've come from or my they they feel that somehow that, they're, that they are Considered less than because how some people view them, right? And they're looking for the world to somehow accept them. And what we need is God's people say, look, I accept you, who you are, where you are, but where is it God wants to take you? And if our identity is not in Christ, then we are, we are left to the, the ways of this world to get acceptance and, and worth. And what God is saying, look, if you want to be, if you want to have a a life worth living, look, recognize that it's only God can do for you. That he can call you part of his family, son of God. He can look at your life and say, look, I'm giving you an exalted position. And I'm what I'm doing. I'm, I'm bringing you to that point where you realize that you are truly a new person in Christ. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old thing's passed away. Behold, new things have come. So where are we left with this morning? How how are you doing spiritually? Are are you looking for something outside, external to change you? Your own religiosity or or some type of mystical experience? Are, Are you judging how you're doing spiritually by how you're feeling in a particular day? Or you recognize what really secures your relationship with God spiritually, what God does for you. This never changes if you truly put your trust and faith in Jesus. You will always be a son of God. You will always be a new person in Christ. You will always have an exalted position. No matter what people around you say, no matter what you even feel on a particular day, this is what Jesus has done for you. And then what we have the privilege to do is now walk in a life where we're, we're looking for what God next wants to do to us, in us, and through us for His glory. God is most glorified when you're most satisfied in Him, where this is your source of joy. This is your source of purpose. This is what brings life to you and to others around you when you follow Him with everything that is within you. Let's pray. Father, there might be someone here this morning that as they came in, they weren't sure how well they were doing spiritually. And Father, sometimes we put our trust in that which really doesn't matter. And Father, I pray that today we might realize what really matters is what is our relationship with you right now? Are we trusting you? Are we putting our confidence in you? Are we following your plan for our lives just to draw close and draw others close to you as well? Father, there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Father, I pray they might simply surrender their lives to Jesus. Jesus, forgive me my sin. Make me a new person on the inside. I want to follow you with all that I have and all that I am. And Father, for all of us who've already made that commitment, might we, in a new and fresh way, keep seeing Jesus as the center of who we are, and we praise in Christ's name. Amen.